How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast with a squeaky intro, Squeaky times. Episode 99. Oh my goodness, Zeke. You know what this spells upside down? 66. I was going to say our audience in a love sign because we love our audience. I'm confused. I'm sorry, Zeke. Oh, it does. Yeah, I guess it does. When you think about it, you have to invert one of the sixes. Yeah, I was. I was just being very elaborate. I was being a doofus, but I'm glad you Mm. added some legitimacy to it. Well, that's my job here to legitimize this podcast for 99. All my junk. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jake. Yes. This is a big. This is a big week for you for your uh, film quote. Are you ready for your 1999 film quote? I, I think I am. I'm in the lead at the moment, so... But it's a very slim lead, and if you do not get this one right, you'll have to go to a, a death match, right? Like, technically... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's you'll a, have, a to de- de- have to... I'll have to get you a quote from a, 2000 to a decide death, it. death match with myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, Your pride will be on the line, and we don't want to take that away in episode 100, so... Yeah, it's like Gladiator, but he just fights himself in the ring. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now... We've done a lot of films, just before uh, I, I give you the film quote, we've done a lot of films on this show from the year 1999. This is a weird quote. Oh, that's a good um, point. So, <laughs> I'm going to give you a hint. We have done this on we the have show. Okay. Uh, well, we have done this. Okay. Yes. Cool. We began... We... Sorry. We began <laughs> the impossible process of trying to forget them. Hmm. I have a guess. Okay. We've done it. Oh, you know what? Oh, I think I know what you're doing. Is this Fight Club? Would you like oh. to lock in Fight Club? Yeah, I think it's Fight Club, and I have a reason why. Unfortunately, Jake, you oh. are incorrect. No! So I thought you were being cheeky with David Fincher. You will have to go. No, I'm doing oh. another um, director that we have done on the show. This was episode 90, Sophia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides. Wow. I was going way deeper in our, in our library than that. You no. cheeky. So, Jake, you'll have to decide on I wouldn't, episode I wouldn't 100. have got that. I'm not. I'm going to be honest. I wouldn't have got that. Right. So, yeah, it's a death match next week for episode two. Well, yeah, rather, the year 2000. Yes. But episode 100. Very keen to see if you get up and your pride survives. Yeah. Um, How you doing, right. Jake? I'm good. Uh, as you tell from last week, my voice is back, mm-hmm. kind of. I'm still a little sick, but that... It's okay. We were we're trugging trugging along. How are you, how are you, Zeke? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, it's really crazy to be this close to episode 100. Yeah, it's definitely around the corner now. We're going to talk a bit about it later in the show. Episode mm-hmm. 100, some plans, some ideas. Um, but there's actually a lot I want to talk about in terms of the film world before we get into our mm-hmm. films that we've seen this past week. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to run you through I've seen some a few of this. in the last week, but not enough to really. Uh, take up too much time of this show. Okay, I've literally just seen the one, and then I've rewatched a bunch of stuff. But yeah. um, so I think we're going to take up some time to talk about these things. So uh, I talked a bit last week, Zig, about how the uh, or maybe the week before even how the awards season is technically beginning with a few things. We have the uh, let's see the Sunset Circle Awards, mm-hmm. which is like a critics thing, and it actually is quite indicative of a lot of the films that people are predicting are going to come up at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have nominations. We have winners. Uh, I also just want to... Throw, we're not going to talk about them too much, but I want to talk about the actors just for a second, the Australian awards and the fact that Baby Teeth won, like, I think it was nine or 12. Let me just quickly check. Uh, 
I'm forgetting the number here, but Baby Teeth won big time, which I'm very happy about. Yeah. Yes. Um, oh, here we go. Uh, I think it was nine. Yes. No, Baby Teeth received nine awards. That's right. So it won Best Film, mm-hmm. presented by Fox L. Also won Best Direction for Shannon Murphy, uh, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Supporting Actor. So all four uh, of them. Yep, all four of them, respectively, for uh, Eliza Scanlon, Toby Wallace, Ben Mendelsohn, and Essie Davis, whom we love very much, mm-hmm. all of the above. And, of course, best screenplay uh, for Ritter Kaunias. I apologize for the name pronunciation, but uh, the film won big time. So big shout-out to Baby Teeth. We are, mm. I think we are both in a grill. Well-earned awards. Yeah. yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it does in our awards in episode 102. Oh, cheeky 102? No, 104. I, uh, Sorry. 104? Yeah, it's 104. Okay. Our first episode for the new year is 103, I think. Okay. Well, 104 is technically the year mark because we had 52, oh, 104. Oh, yeah. oh, very good point. All right. Yeah, 104 when we do our, our own awards show. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. All right. Well, I'm going to run some of these <clears throat> nominations and award winners for the Sunset Circle. Now, Zeke, we, between us, we've seen a fair few of these. Not all of them. Mm-hmm. Some of them are still coming out over the next month or two. There's a film coming out in, I think, on Boxing Day over here, which I'm so excited about. We'll get to that in a minute. All right. Um, so out of the top films, they've nominated 10. Uh, we'll count quickly how many we've respectively seen of them. These include The Father, The King of Staten Island, uh, Ma Rooney's Black Bottom, Mank, uh, Mariani, or uh, Minari, excuse me, Nine Days, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Saint Maud, and The Sound of Metal. So we've both seen King of Staten Island and Mank. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about Mank this week. Uh, I've also seen Sound of Metal. I'm going to talk a bit about that soon. And I think that's it between us. Yes. Yeah, that I can't sounds recall right. any of the other ones. Yeah, I think those are coming out soon. Uh, no Man Land is coming out later this month in cinemas. I'm so keen for that. It's going to be amazing. Um, so those were the top film nominations. So Promising Young Woman won. Okay. Uh, with Mank being the runner-up, which is interesting. Mm. So uh, I think a lot of people are looking forward to Mank being like the big show, sort of showstopper. Uh, at awards later this season, but um, well, I, I guess we'll just throw it quickly. What do you think of Mank being runner-up, even though you haven't seen the film that beat it? I'll be intrigued to see the film that beat it. Interesting. I like that answer. Yeah. <laughs> I just noticed as well uh, the Trial of Chicago Seven not in this list at all. No, which is interesting. Um, I don't think they got a lot of love at Sunset, so uh, hopefully they get some more. Uh, so for Best Director, we have The Sound of Metal, uh, Darius Marder. Uh, we have Mank for David Fincher, of course. Uh, Lee Isaac Chan for uh, Minari. Uh, Chloe Chloe Zale for No Man Land. And uh, Florence Zeller for The Father. So we've only seen Mank so far mm-hmm. uh, for David Fincher. Uh, Mank didn't win anything. Uh, no Man Land got runner-up. And Sound of Metal, which I watched this morning, got Best Director. Which wow, is very, very interesting. Uh, I'm going to run through these until we get... Well, here's a couple. So we've both seen Hillbilly Elegy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Glenn Close and Amy Adams respectively got runner-up nods. Uh, Glenn Close for Best Actress and Amy Adams for Best Supporting Actress. Okay. Which I would probably think should be flipped. In terms of their positioning? Uh, yeah, I feel like Glenn Close was definitely supporting. Well, I don't know. Um, now that I think about it, I don't know, actually. No, I mean, that's a tricky one because yeah. I feel like Glenn Close gets more character moments in Hillbilly Elegy than, like, moments, yeah, like, yeah. to really, uh, which probably would elevate her above Adams. Adams is very much uh, more the, the, yeah, she's more a support to 
um what's the main dude's uh oh god um dj vance the, yes, that's DJ the character vance. slash author of the book yeah yes he's um yeah he's obviously he's more of a catalyst for his character i think yeah okay yeah i'm actually kind of coming around on um glenn close for best actress um again this is for runner up so uh carrie mulligan for promising young woman one for best actress mm-hmm. and uh, best supporting actually went to Yo Ya Jan for uh, Minari, so that film's getting a lot of love, which is interesting. Uh, I think it's a foreign film. I mean, it's definitely like an Asian film, but I don't know if it's like in English or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, so best supporting actor Bill Burr actually got runner-up for King of Staten Island, really, which is awesome. That's, that's <laughs> fascinating. Love, yeah, I love that. And uh, best uh, best supporting actor went to Paul Racy for Sound of Metal, which I can confirm is a great performance. Okay. Uh, in the film I saw earlier today. Uh, I feel like I missed one. Did I miss Best Supporting... I missed Best Actor, which actually went to Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal. So okay. he's the dude... He's the main actor in that film, but he's also the dude from Nightcrawler and The Sisters Brothers, and uh, he's he's good in that. And Anthony Hopkins for The Father was the runner-up, which is interesting because I've heard a lot of good buzz about that. So a um, lot of um, diversity... Uh, cast getting the wins, yeah, which is nice. Which is nice. Because yeah. um, I'm not, none of these upset me at all. Yeah. So far, I mean, pretty, I, I yeah. think it comes back to if we can get to a stage where we don't even acknowledge sort of diversity and we let performances do the talking, then that's the way to go, I think. Um, mm. uh, I feel like it comes back to um, obviously in the last year with the Oscars, we had Parasite winning and. Yeah. That was a big, uh, there was a lot of, you know, row behind it being a foreign film. And honestly, we can get to a stage where we don't acknowledge if a film is like, you know, you know, it's not winning or getting recognized because of its diversity Mm. and it's being recognized for the piece of artwork it is. um, That'll be great. So, um, well, like I said, none of these feel like a stretch. Well, I think that's the the important take from what you just said. Yeah, Mm. for sure. Um, some of the other nominated actor and actresses in these categories was uh, Chadwick Boseman for Maroonie's uh, Black Bottom, Ben Affleck for The Way Back, which I think is, that's a stretch. Mm. If we're going to talk about a stretch, I didn't think he was that great in that film. Uh, let's see. Also, uh, Vanola Davis for uh, Mal Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman, uh, we, uh, Bill Burr for Supporting in On the Rocks, uh, which we saw that and we liked him, uh, Stanley Tucci for Supernova, I know that's a film you're really keen on mm-hmm. seeing, um, so he got nominated as well. And Amandi Seyfry for Mank, uh, which, again, we'll be talking about later, and Olivia Coleman for The Father. So those are all people who got nominated uh, but didn't win. Yeah. Uh, so going on Best Ensemble, Hillbilly Elegy, The King of Staten Island, uh, Maroney's Black Bottom, uh, Minari and The Prom, which is we've seen, I think, two of those. Mm-hmm. The uh, first the, two. Yeah, and The Prom comes out later this week to Netflix. I haven't seen that one yet. I suppose uh, Mank didn't get an odd for ensemble. Yeah, it's a good ensemble. Yeah. That's strange. Anyway, so Hillbilly Elegy, you've got the runner-up role and Mal Rooney's uh, Black Bottom one, which is really interesting. Uh, the Father one for Best Screenplay. Uh, no surprises, Mank run for Best Cinematography, mm-hmm. uh, with No Man Land being a runner-up. Uh, this is interesting. So the score for Minari got runner-up for Best Score, uh, while Tenet got Best Score, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say that I'm the biggest fan of the Tenet score. I don't really remember it, to be honest. I think uh, it's quite intricate, if I okay. recall. But there were other problems with the film that might have over oversought the the score. I think if we listen yeah. to the score, 
in an isolated situation, mm. we'd probably be quite impressed with its intricacy. And That's layering. a really good point. There are some very interesting behind-the-scenes videos on how they composed uh, Tenant, which really kind of set it apart because of its experimental nature. And mm. um, obviously, we remember the scores more from Inception and Interstellar. Yeah, when it comes to Nolan films, and um, unfortunately, there were other problems with the sound mixing that I actually think take away from <laughs> take away from the score. No, I think you're absolutely right. If we listen to like the soundtrack and the mm-hmm. album in a secluded thing, I think you're 100 percent right. Though it will stand out more. Um, I also want to give a shout out that Soul was also nominated for best score. The Pixar film that is around the corner as I'm well. Very excited. Um, for Scene Stealer, this is interesting. So Toby Wallace from Baby Sheep actually got a nod for Scene Stealer here. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't get either. The runner, actually, both runner-up and winner came from Trial of Chicago Seven, so a little bit of love here. It went to Yaya Abo uh, Adol Madin too, uh, as the runner-up for the Trial of Chicago Seven, and Michael Keaton actually won for Scene Stealer, which is interesting. I guess so. Yeah, I would have gone with something probably from either Sasha Baron Cohen or mm. Eddie Redmayne. I would have probably given something to him. Yeah, neither of them nominated. Which yeah, is interesting. I would have given probably Redmayne for that sequence about the the interrogation, the, the fake interrogation he gets from... Right. If I cannot recall the lawyer's name, but I thought that scene was one of my favourite scenes in that film. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, I, I, I just like seeing the film get nods of any kind, and I think mm-hmm. I think that entire cast is getting... Uh, the fact that they didn't pushed. get an ensemble mention is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, you know what? Let me just quickly check if they were nominated. I don't think they were, which you're right. Is, they weren't. That's insane. Yeah. That That's is, a strong ensemble. Yeah. That that is the ensemble. Mm-hmm. I feel like because I remember I think Knives Out wasn't even nominated for best ensemble at oh, Golden wow. Globes or something. That's, yeah, that that blew my mind. That is that is highway robbery. Yeah, I was like, what's film. going on? All right, the last one I'll just quickly mention. Got uh, love at the Oscars though. Did get love at the Oscars that film? Yeah, yeah, it definitely got nominated for screenplay, which got nominated for a couple of things, didn't it? I, yeah, I, from memory, I think so. I think got two or three nods, and then I think one JoJo win. got a little more love though. Yeah, which is fine. Um, the other one, oh yeah, so uh, director to watch. I want to give runner up to Rose Glass for Saint Maud, which is coming around the corner, I believe, from A twenty four, and Emerald Fennell uh, for Promising Young Woman. One, the director to watch. Surprise, Shannon Murphy doesn't get a shoe in. That was her yeah. first. That's a bit of a. Oh, oh well, well, that's going to hurt. The, the it's going to hurt baby... watching it not get a lot of. I know love the, the fact. <clears throat> excuse me, that baby Tiff got nominated for anything. Tells us that yes, it was in the running. For mm. these films, so, oh, well. Yeah, but I think for me, I think it's yep. like, look, you've mentioned its actor dominance, but it didn't really have much to compete with this year in terms of Australian cinema. Right. Um, like, Rams is probably the only other <laughs> mainstream release. and I'm sure Rams got, like, nominations or... Probably didn't. Every category Baby Teeth got nominated in. <laughs> um, but it, it was probably a one-horse race at that actor's awards, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. Um, That's my computer telling me that Rams didn't win anything. <laughs> I'm not even joking. So, um, yeah, I think it comes back to uh, it's a shame, and it's going to be a shame to see it <laughs> once again kind of get pushed to the wayside, as it doesn't get counted as a foreign film, does it? No, no, because it's, it's, it's all in English, so... That's, that's. I feel like Australia does have a slot for foreign film, but that's uh, like if they use the Nunar language, for example. Mm. If it's in English, then then it has to play play hard with the other films, not in the foreign category. That that's all right. Well, like like at least it got. But it's uh, not all right. It really. got a lot of love where 
where it counted. I think it does count for something. Okay. It exploding at the actors. Anyway, so that's the actors. That's the uh, noms and winners, or at least the highlights I think are worth talking about for the Sunset Circle Awards. And uh, I think over the next, I guess, five, six months, we'll mm-hmm. be talking about awards season. Now, the only other things I want to talk about real quickly is this was sort of in the news. I'm sure you've heard of it, is the HBO announcement from Warner Brothers how pretty much all of their 2021 slate of films is going to come directly and straight to digital the same day they hit theaters. Hmm. Uh, so we're talking about films like Mortal Kombat, which apparently is in January, which is very hmm. close. Uh, the new Tom and Jerry film, uh, Godzilla vs. Kong, the new Conjuring film, Space Jam and New Legacy, and then bigger films uh, later in the year, like Suicide Squad, the one um, they're redoing. Uh, the Matrix 4, Dune, these are all big films. And I think Wonder Woman's also later this month getting a straight to HBO Max release. Wow. Um, so they've come out, and of course this has caused quite a certain AMC theaters are very upset about this, as they were with Universal earlier in the mm-hmm. year. But um, I wanted to mention this because this is a big deal in terms of the state of theaters, and this is something that we kind of forget now. We're, we've gone right back into taking cinemas for granted mm-hmm. here in Australia, but you know, when I get into arguments with people online about you know the, the, the importance of cinemas, I forget that people in the US, it's so dangerous for them to go. Yeah. So I kind of forget that still. This is definitely, this move was always coming. And mm. I think an event like this is the perfect opportunity for streaming platforms to make this move. I mean, it's to say the warning signs weren't there mm. is would be very narrow-minded and very short-sighted because, I mean, we've been seeing it. I mean, back when we first started this show, episode two was Roma, which was a Netflix yeah. exclusive. I mean, at the end of the day, sure, these got festival runs, but... Most of them, and we've had multiple uh, episodes on this show where we've done Netflix exclusives or streaming exclusives. Mm. Honey Boy was a prime release, if I recall. Yeah, over here for sure. Yeah. Um. So it had a theatrical run, but it it went pretty quickly, went straight to prime. Yeah. So it, it comes back to it's only a matter of time until this move was going to happen, and obviously, given the current climate of mm. the world in terms of health and safety. This is the perfect time for them to make this move, um, because and push cinemas closer and closer <laughs> to not the staple anymore, but the kind of a relic from a time and and honestly a special occasion where people reminisce mm. on what was, and that means that uh, well we're going to change the way we consume things. I think um, because there's going to be. Not less, well, it probably will be less money thrown at films again because they won't require mm. as much upkeep to gain the money back, maybe. like Yeah, well, you're right. In terms of the, the cost to distribute films is, is would be so much cheaper. They don't have to send DCP, uh, DC, DC, yeah, DCP hard drives to like 4,000 theaters if does, they want to play the mean Avengers. Do you reckon there'll be higher film budgets? Because I don't. No, I think. no I'm, I'm with you there in the sense that they're just going to take this opportunity to make the entire process cheaper. Yeah. And I think they're going to spend less money. I mean, money we look at a lot of total. Netflix exclusives. I mean, obviously, The Irishman had a really big budget. Yeah, massive, um, massive budget. But a lot of those Netflix exclusives don't have more than you know fifty million thrown at them. They're not excessive yeah. budgets. They're mostly quite pushed under under thirty, really. Well, we talked about when we talked about Trial of the Chicago Seven. That was a perfect example of them wanting to do a theatrical release and making the film for about thirty five million, and then Netflix bought it for about fifty five million. Yeah. So uh, the production company, they made their money back and Netflix hopefully got the money through subs- new subscribers. 
yeah. for that film. I, they they know well, how they make that. I think it comes back to it's not just getting new ones; it's retaining the old ones yeah. by giving enough films to keep justify the service rolling over. I mean, that's the I think that's the point of Netflix originals. I mean, I've been mm. a Netflix subscriber for at least two years now. Yeah. So, and I have no inkling of getting rid of my subscription because they keep putting more stuff on there to which I'll talk about and then probably mm. bridge into what we're watching this oh, week. I like that. Um, I mean, I've managed to catch four films this week and I believe I think I caught all four of them through Netflix. Oh, so there you go. There you go. It's definitely the easier option and the, like I had a bit of fun. I'm I'm flipping back and forth between keeping my Prime account or letting it roll over and, and not you know be charged or having it and it's like it literally just was the, the simplicity of me uh, downloading, not down, well, yeah, downloading and and logging into my like the Netflix account, which I share with uh, my brother Stan, which I share with my sister Dis- Disney Plus, which I pay for, mm-hmm. um, and Prime, which I've only got temporarily. Disney installing all of those into the one spot on my PlayStation was like, oh wow, like there's so many options here. It sort of got me excited about having so many films within arm's reach, and I'm you know more than most people love going to the movies. I love going to cinemas, and I don't know how much this is going to affect Australia. I know HBO Max is currently not. I think it's an US exclusive mm. service, um, which makes a lot of sense because like, we're probably still going to get all of these films. We're going to get The Suicide Squad and Dune in cinemas and they're going to get it over there too, but it depends how much money they make off the streaming versions than they do over here. And, uh, and are they just putting it on HBO Max? Are they doing the Disney Plus where they charge extra for these films? Yeah. They might charge a little bit extra. I think what Disney have been doing has been absurd, like what they charged for Mulan's... Uh... Uh, watching was yeah, I like think, thirty-five bucks on top uh, of the subscription. Yeah. Um, if they started putting little micro things in there, like sort of like what they used to do back at Blockbuster back in the day, where the the new releases were at the one nighters were a little bit more expensive, you know, mm. an extra two three dollars more. We shouldn't give them ideas, Zeke. <laughs> no, it's true, but who knows? My, it's probably only a matter of time till microtransactions come to those oh, sort of things. Fuck. Uh, <laughs> So I managed to, speaking of like streaming yep. platforms, I managed to catch uh, another Nicholas Stoller <coughs> film. Um, so I have been talking about him a little bit in the last couple of weeks. I did watch Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Mm. Um, uh, I've talked about watching Get Into the Greek, and I watched Neighbours this week for the first time. I enjoyed it well enough. It made me laugh. Oh, um, was it Neighbours or Bad Neighbours? So is this is Neighbours oh, on called neighbors. Letterboxd. So okay. I th- and I do recall when it originally came out, it was Bad Neighbours. I think it might have been rebranded and renamed. Interesting. Um, okay. Much like another film that I caught, uh, which I will probably want to talk about a little bit more, the other two films I watched, because Neighbours, kind of just yeah, another Yeah, right. Comedy. It's just called Neighbours. Okay. Um, so I managed to catch a Lee Schreiber film uh, that was directed by Philippe Falado. Um, I can't say I've caught any others of his films. Um, this is the first film... I've seen from him uh, that has, yeah, like I said, Leif Schreiber and Naomi Watts in it called Chuck, which mm. was about the boxer that inspired um, Sylvester Stallone to create Rocky, um, who was a real-life individual, this this guy. He was mm. a New Jersey uh, amateur boxer that had a heavyweight fight against Muhammad Ali, um, and he, in turn, <laughs> uh, inspired the creation of Rocky. Okay. And it sort of goes through his life. It's uh, kind of autobiographical, but I just really enjoy Leif Schreiber. I don't get to see him enough in, in films, um, mm. and it's always nice when he pops up, but I think he's a great talent. And uh, I found this film kind of entertaining. It was, it was a different take on a sports film. I'm just quickly checking what other films he's in. Man, he's in um, Isle of Dogs, Into the Spider-Verse, Spotlight. The guy's busy. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Um, probably most people would know him from the X Men Origins film. I would say that Wolverine film. He's the oh, brother. He, yeah, he so does look like him. Yeah, good call. Oh, uh, there it is. Yeah, X Men Origins Wolverine. <laughs> oh um, goodness. The other film I caught was from Elizabeth Chomko, and this is her only directing. Uh, this is a directorial debut from 2018. Okay. And uh, stars pretty crazy for a first film. It stars uh, Hilary Swank, Michael Shannon, the late Robert Forster, mm. and uh, and uh, Blith Danner, who I've seen in a couple of things. Um, and that's called What We Have, uh, What We uh, What They Had. Uh, and I'll just read you the logline for it. Yeah. Uh, family united by the past, divided by the present. <laughs> a woman must uh, fly back to her hometown when her Alzheimer's-stricken mother wanders into a blizzard. The return home forces her to confront her past. So this film was really interesting. Real, like I said, really strong, um, uh, for for foursome cast and right, like uh, Shirley so, and Baby Teeth. Yep. <laughs> um, and I really enjoyed this film. It, it didn't uh, try to do anything. Uh, uh, it was more definitely mother performance feast, like Baby Teeth and uh, uh, Shirley, but. Yep. Did have some cool creative things with archival footage based on obviously focusing on the memory side with the Alzheimer's stricken mother and talking about memories and then actually cutting back to what looked like very real archival footage of people experiencing their life, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Sounds very experimental in a way. A little bit. Um, Nothing too crazy. It was mostly Mm. down to the performances and obviously like I list off those, particularly Shannon and Swank who... Um, are obviously going to bring their A game. Uh, it's funny with Hilary Swank because you don't catch her in as much in this last decade. She was very big in the the two thousands. Um, obviously, with yeah, like, she was in that I Am Mother movie recently, wasn't she? She was. Yeah, she's in Logan Lucky too for a small bit. Oh, yeah. She's the detective, but she doesn't get the same. She had a. There was definitely a a period of time where she was very prominent, pushing A list Hollywood, and some. You know, she kind of fell back a bit. But it was nice to see her in another performance where she, you know, she could flex her acting acting muscles. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with um, as we talked about, we have talked about on the show with uh, El Camino and stuff with Robert Forster. It was really nice to see him in a performance where he could you oh, know, yeah. be in a strong supporting role too, and he's really impressive in this. Um, uh, I just really like it. It's a film that um, I don't know if it's just been added to Netflix or it's another one of those little hidden gems you got to go looking for, but. Mm. Um, it's definitely got a lot of charm to it, and I think a really solid uh, family drama story. So very nice. So yeah. that's one of the hidden gems you found. Yes, successfully. Yeah, I actually <laughs> had a pretty good week for it. With between that and Chuck, I was pretty happy. Nice. With it. It's good output. Yeah. Very nice. So, well, I didn't watch a lot this week. Um, as I said earlier, I'll make a little joke about um, beginning Better Call Saul season five on Blu-ray and noticing that all the commentary tracks you can tell that they were recorded in isolation. Uh, the quality is like a little bit off, and it's like ah. No, I appreciate it. I do. Um, The only film I really caught this week was Sound of Metal, which we mentioned earlier at the Sunset Circle Awards. Um, And yeah, one for Best Director, won a couple of acting nods, and um, I quite enjoyed it. So this is, like I said, it's directed by uh, Darius Marder. I think it's his only feature. Mm -hmm. I've heard it's his feature debut, according to Prime, because Prime has that X-ray feature that comes up for their statistics and stuff but um like i said it has the guy from uh, nightcrawler and sisters brothers and all of that and um it's essentially about a drummer who goes deaf and that's pretty much the plot and i kind of expected it to be a little more like this sort of fight for survival whiplash thing where he tries to fight through 
his impending deafness mm-hmm. to, to play. And I I got something very different, much like the character in the film. I got a bit more of a, a slower, nuanced sort of uh, story, I guess, like about accept, uh, acceptance and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really well done. I love the way they played with the sound design and um, how they shift perspective from, you know, hearing what you normally hear and then all of a sudden you kind of smash cut to sonically to what he's hearing uh, as his hearing is going away. And it's just, it's yeah. a great way to play with the perspective of like juxtaposing what we're seeing versus how he's seeing the same event. Mm. And um, I, put, uh, I thought the performance was really great. I love the way they dealt with, um, there's a lot of um, characters who are deaf in the film. I, I imagine a lot of them are actually deaf in real life, the actors portraying them, but the way they dealt with that and SAL or ASL American sign language and, um, all that I thought was really well done, and I thought it was a really nifty film. I think I think Letterbox likes it a lot more than I do. Mm-hmm. I think I set it on like a three and a half stars. I thought it was very good, not amazing, because uh, mm-hmm. it, it it was sort of as good as I expected it to be, but it didn't like blow me away. Like, you know, when you watch something, you're like, oh my god, this is like incredible. I think yeah. that feeling, even though a lot of people I know and a lot of people on Letterbox seemed to like, they were giving it perfect scores and everything. Um, I thought it was just a nice film. Okay. Um, and it, it's cool to see that the sun's that they're giving it a few nods. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I recommend it. It's on Prime at the moment, so. Well, it's good to see it on Prime. Uh, yeah. big, big contention topic today, uh, talking about streaming platforms and the yeah. future of cinema. Um, speaking of cinema, Jake, have you got any uh, little career updates before we move into our film of the week? Uh, nothing too specific, Zeke. Actually, you know what? We wrapped... Um, well, first off, we wrapped Work From Home, mm-hmm. which is a film that the last few weeks we've been talking about. This massive 14-day shoot we finally wrapped, and everything's looking nice and uh, Gucci. Nice. Very exciting. Um, and I'll have more information about our behind-the-scenes video very shortly. Uh, but the other thing I want to talk about is our Soaring Saturdays, like little Saturday videos. Uh, we're mm-hmm. actually wrapping those up for the year. Uh, so we just uploaded our 20th, which is a bit of GoPro, GoPro footage at the beach. Mm-hmm. We actually shot a year ago. Um, now we're taking a bit of a break. I'm hoping next week or next year rather to put out another 20 weeks worth of content, but have it all like pre-planned. Cause mm-hmm. the thing I noticed is like if you're trying to do this weekly content, you end up rushing a lot of weeks. Some videos don't look anywhere near as good as other videos or, yeah. um, you want to go out somewhere with your drone, but you know, you can't fit into your schedule. So I kind of want to try and shoot and edit everything before it releases. It's kind of like a normal TV show in a way. No, that's fair. So, um, yeah. What about you, Zeke? Any anything new to nah, report? Nothing for me this week. Uh, uh, you're on holiday. I am on holiday, and <laughs> I am loving it. So I guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week. But mm. Jake, what are we watching this week in the show? We're watching Mank. Mank. It's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it? The writer says. Tell the story you know. 1930s Hollywood is re-evaluated through the eyes of scathing wit and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the script of what will eventually become Citizen Kane. Eventually become Citizen Kane, Jake. I added that. Because the script's America, or American. Yes. Whatever the original script, they called it. This but, is a uh, yeah. film that just got released to Netflix, mm. once, tying, once again tying back to our discussion earlier yeah, of streaming platforms. Um, and it's probably one of those films that, if you looked at the start of the year, was definitely one people would push Oscar buds towards. Yeah, and I think I think people still are. There's a lot of people. This is high on their list for best picture. It won uh, or got runner up for best director, or I think. 
Yes. No, yeah, well, one of the either best picture or best director. I can't remember which one. It was mm-hmm. one of the two. But uh, yeah, people have been very excited for this. this is David Finch's first film in about six years. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's done Mindhunter and. Um, yes, he's but, not gone into hiding. No, no, he's been busy. He's working on stuff. Uh, House of Cards, of course, the first couple of episodes, and then uh, the what was the sex robots something animated miniseries thing? Oh, love sex and robots. Yeah, was it? that I think that was him as well, or he did something with it. I think so that's an anthology, so he might yep. have done an episode on it. Gotcha, gotcha. So he, you're right. He hasn't been in hiding, but it's been a while since he's done a feature film. I have definitely been pushing the last couple of years. Where is my next David Fincher feature film? Uh, we finally got it, and uh, there. Uh, this is a huge film. There's so much to talk about in terms of the way it affects uh, David Fincher personally, in terms of his style and his personal connection to the writing of the film, in terms of the history of Citizen Kane, the writing of Citizen Kane, this film as its own entity, the release of this film. But it's, this is huge. And I've seen it basically twice. I watched it in a theater a couple of weeks ago and then I, I rewatched it today mostly. I had to sort of skip a few scenes, Zeke. I was, I was leaving mm. you on scene for a little while, but I, I felt pretty confident saying that I very much liked it more the second time around. I think there's a lot to like. There's a lot to pick at. Um, and between our friends, we've had people who like it, people who weren't huge on it. Um, well, it's divisive. I'm just looking at the reviews right now. And interesting. I'm, there's some very... Uh, it's it's all over the place with how people okay. feel about it. So I'm not uh, too surprised by that. That's not too surprising. Well, well, so you when did you watch it first? A few days ago? Well, just Monday. A Saturday. I okay. watched a Saturday. So, so what's um, your initial takeaway? On I enjoyed make? it. I mm. actually really was really... Sad. Now, bear in mind, on the Friday, uh, Jake had already watched this film prior, as, as we talked about. Uh, I see what going, yep. He did provide me a very interesting <laughs> YouTube video... Um, on sort of the uh, production context behind mm. uh, the making of Citizen Kane. Yeah, so there's a video on YouTube from the Royal Ocean Film Society. The video is called The Controversy Behind David Fincher's Mank. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to you because I thought it was incredibly valued to, in terms of the context, you're right, behind the making, mm-hmm. the writing, and the post of Citizen Kane and the authorship of it. It's not a long video. It's 12 minutes long. Yep. So it's really quite nifty to just give... Just that little bit of, because um, this uh, this is going to tie back into our discussion of the film. Yeah. This film takes the route that Fincher <laughs> has taken a couple of times. He's taken it with, like we said, Social Network and um, Zodiac off the air, which it's very much tying to a real life event that occurred and sort of filling in the blanks because a lot of it's very subject, you know, mm. he said, she said, which the other two, both Social Network and Zodiac sort of do the exact same thing because obviously depending on the perspective which he f- does really well in particularly social network how perspective influences the story um and it's not exactly a, a perfect recapture it's very much told from um the perspective through the the court case and even i think jesse eisenberg comments on uh, his character well, well zuckerberg talks about mm-hmm. the subjectivity of of everyone's perspective um, and I think Zodiac captures a very similar thing where it goes basically off case files right. and constructs a narrative sort of around that and the obsession with uh, myth, the myth of the Zodiac killer, whereas this one um, captures uh, the writer that very quietly is <coughs> uh, put in the credits of Citizen Kane as the person that wrote it, even though 
most people would, you know, obviously not even know who Herman J. Markowitz was mm. prior to this film, I think. Well, so. yeah, especially in comparison to Orson Welles and his yeah. fame as a filmmaker. Well, what, what, so... It, well, it's, the myth of, I would say it's the myth of Citizen, yeah, Citizen Kane. Yeah, I mean, myth's a good word to put it. The So, uh, we definitely recommend you watch the video, but I guess we'll give a quick rundown of what... This is the supposed history of of the making of Citizen Kane, which this film dwells into, um, and it's based around a, an essay, a very controversial essay written by a Pauline Cal, K A E L, who basically went on. The essay is pretty much talking about what this film is. The narrative of this film is pretty much the mostly sp- yeah the, the spine. Um, the, definitely the thesis of that essay reflects kind of what I would say. Not quite what this is, um, because she basically says that he wrote it purely and solely, right? Um, in her essay, whereas this film is saying he wrote the first draft, um, but I think still implies that the development <coughs> comes over time. I guess the implications there, because I sort of took it as it was very much the script was based on this essay and this essay alone. And, and I think Fincher can be given a little credit here because it was written by his dad, his late father, Jack Fincher, in the mm-hmm. 90s. And, of course, a lot of people have tried to you know contest this essay and say, oh, well, Orson Welles did this and that. And I get what you mean with the film. Well, there were counter-essays. There were two essays yeah. by Bogdanovich, which we actually talked a little bit about on The Other Side of the Wind. Okay, Because he does feature in... That and I think I also talked about on the documentary uh, "They'll Love Me When I'm Dead," mm. which is the documentary on Orson Welles. It wasn't an episode of the show, but that yeah. elaborates a little bit more on Bogdanovich's relationship with Orson Welles as sort of a tutor-student complex. Interesting between Welles and and Bogdanovich, <laughs> um, and he's the one who wrote the first counter essay to Cows, in which he basically said, "No, he took the first draft and then developed it." Mm. And he wrote, and obviously there were some audio excerpts in which he said he wrote his version of the script, and Markowitz Mank wrote his version of the script, and then they sort of took he took what he liked from that one, and then yeah, took and what he liked from yeah, his one, compiled it all together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I feel like this film doesn't represent that though. I, you're right; it could be inferred. They do, afterwards. but they do infer the fact that. Manx script was absurdly too long. Like yes. it was three hundred and fifty pages, which they and then they infer that Orson does take that script. And this is spoiling the film, but it's also a real life event. Yeah, so it was talking about the the real versus the fiction that this movie muddles with and plays with. And but yeah. I think Fincher does that really well in both The Social Network and um, Zodiac. Mm. It's sort of like I said, it's sort of the subjectivity of filling in the blanks. I mean, you can't say that the social network was point for point exactly what happened in real life. This is just, at the end of no. the day, they are all fiction films based, and that's why you put based on a true story, mm. not this is a true story, because unlike a film like American Animals, where they get the real life people to physically present <coughs> the narrative in a more documentary format that makes it very close to reality, um, this film is told, however, well, the writer, in this case... David's dad, Jack, hmm. perceived the story. And yeah. like, I think you're correct. I think it's definitely taking a more mank, pro-mank side on this and definitely mm. arch frames Orson as this sort of silent he's, he's antagonist. He's easily the villain in many ways in this um, film. We'll get to it. But. I, would, I, um, I would say he's not the 
overt villain. I would right. I would say if anything, it's the people um, in the past are the ones who are more framed as the film's antagonists. People like Charles Dance's character, and mm. the people that shape the uh, what the story is based around, and how the story is uh, influenced by the past events that Mank has experienced with uh, this company, the, the falling of his at a MGM. Yeah, I, f- I feel like it's all sort of toppled. Um, but I'm thinking even just in terms of uh, the the scripting of Orson Welles coming in at the beginning, and, and this is even cinematically displayed when he's like in this big car, he's out of focus, he's got the maniacal laugh a little bit, but even towards the end, they sort of have the one-on-one battle for authorship, or for credit, rather. Mm-hmm. I feel like those are the scenes that tell me, like, here's the one-on-one, here's the antagonist representation, I guess. I get what you mean. Like, there's a lot more going on than just, you know, uh, Mankiewicz versus Wells. Like, I yeah, get that. Absolutely. But, um, I, it's the I politics of cinema. Sorry? It's the politics of cinema. Yeah, well, it's 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 always... This is what I... When I first saw the film, I walked away so surprised at how little this felt about Citizen Kane. And it's more about Herman J. Mankiewicz being sort of this social and political outcast with the people around him and with Hollywood and sort of... Mm. He's out yeah. of touch with the industry that he finds, like, he's in. Mm basically, yeah. and the changing sort of consistently changing landscape and honestly the fickleness of, of cinema, I think. Um, and we'll probably go into like highlight scenes in more detail, obviously, when we get there, but yep. some of the scenes in this film where it's mostly just a compilement of rich upper-class people having no clue what's really going on with the outside world, discussing the outside yeah, world. that's a great scene, especially... It's like the first birthday party scene where they're talking about politics and well, they're, particularly, will, they're so unaware of what's happening in Germany with Hitler mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And yeah. Then, um, but even that scene, I kind of laugh at how much like Gary Oldman is like the hero who's he, he knows what's going on and people sort of are like, well, no. Like well, kind he's of, talking about concentration camps and yeah. people are literally asking, what's a concentration camp? Yes. Like... <laughs> It's fascinating that um, how we how we're positioned in in this uh, this way, and I find it intriguing that people aren't a big fan of this film. Maybe because of its slow, methodical <laughs> pace. Maybe the it's a very cold, slow script, and that threw me off the first time I watched it as well. That's interesting because I actually never found the pacing that much of a problem. I, I thought it was way better the second time I watched it. Okay, I was like, this is going way faster than I remember it going because like I kind of knew what to expect. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. It's not a film about Citizen Kane. It really isn't. No, I, and it's you know? funny. I actually think it's a completely different take on the cinematic apparatus that we're used to, and I kind of like that, that mm. it's talking more about, like I said, the fickle uh, politics of creativity and, and the industry and how um, it's not necessarily about filmmaking. It's about all the stuff that leads up to filmmaking or mm. all of the sitting around at parties and talking and pretending to care about what everyone else is thinking while the world around them and the people below them are suffering and the decisions made by these people that are not filmmakers but businessmen. Like, mm. that's a big conversation, obviously. Yeah, especially this... with the, the head of MGM. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't realise how prominent he was in so many scenes until I rewatched it, but, I mean, he's he's the one that literally asks, what's a concentration camp? Yeah. You're right, these are different... People are in different games... Yeah, in this room. So, yeah. I mean, and I find that really fascinating in a different way. And but uh, I would say it's cold, and I would say it's not the most approachable film by no. any stretch. People comparing it to Roma a lot, which I I said to you, 
And since saying that, I've seen other people start to compare it to Roma. Mm-hmm. So I I guess in terms of like, will it win Best Picture? Is it approachable? You know, black and white, kind of coldish, <laughs> slowish yeah. film. I I I don't I think it's don't, a great I comparison. I don't think it is either. Right. I think um, the only thing I can really find is they both got really good cinematography and they're both in black and white. Yeah. That's pretty much all I can give for that. I think That's Roma completely talks about a completely different. Roma has more heart, I think, as well. Yeah, more emotion. Definitely more emotion. Um, this film's, I would say, is probably closer to more struggling artist films. I mean, mm. I would say. I find this way more close to something like, I would say, probably Pain and Glory or, or okay. um, stuff that <laughs> more, more talks about, less about the art of making film within a film, more the psychological mm. and the mindsets of, create, of struggling creatives or people that are stifled in their creativity or constantly challenged by their own inner demons. So I actually think Pain and Glory would be a more yeah. I, equitable... Yeah, I agree comparison because that's there's nothing to do with them making film until literally the last shot of that film when it's a take rather than uh whereas the rest of it's told and past and present and is very much exploring this uh you know once hailed cult director Mm. through his everyday life and his sort of inner turmoils and for the most part gary Oldman's in a bed for most of this film yeah (laughs) at least in the present this is a random thought. I'm only going to say this to you now, even though 99% of our audience isn't going to get it, but I just realised the last shot of Pain and Glory is the last shot from Take 98, the short film. Yeah, it is. <laughs> anyway, uh, no one's going to know what I'm talking about, but anyway. Um, no, I agree. This, the fact that it focuses so much on, on Mankiewicz being an alcoholic and, and struggling and all of that. And uh, again, I was a little surprised by how little Citizen Kane's in here, both stylistically and narratively there's little hints i almost and i and there's other things though i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you no, off no, no, Please, no. um well i'll just say like little things like, i made the joke in letterbox that it, this feels like the slumdog millionaire of screenwriting jokes in the sense of like oh there's the zoo that kane owns the private zoo in, in citizen kane. and i rewatched citizen kane last night just to see if i missed anything else mm-hmm. um but just little things like that like oh it's also a non-linear narrative structure oh there's the when he drops the liquor bottle that's the that's the shot, the rosebud shot. You know, mm-hmm. little it's like little hints here and there, but again, I imagine it's not too on the nose. Though. I actually found it. Really no, no, no. Well. I'm not saying it at all. On and the I nose. actually, I actually think some of my favorite ones. Obviously, the most iconic line, like you said, the rosebud shot. But when he says rosebud, mm. and you know, it's been parodied and made fun of in films for years. Right. And I love how quickly they throw away that line in this film, where it's like. There's, they're talking about the first draft and they're just like, oh yeah, that, that Rosebud thing, that's like, that's a metaphor for his woman, right? Yeah, and yeah. it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, the slay's a woman and it's like, but it's not like, oh my God, Rosebud, what a twist. Like, or there's not a moment no where No one's Manx, going crazy, but all the writers, yeah, like, they just know. They yeah, know what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, well, there's not a moment where Mank goes, oh, I know what to do. And he types in <laughs> Rosebud and then we all know, oh, well, that's that moment. It's very much like, oh. You're making an analogy for something. We're guessing this is the analogy. Yeah, I was thinking about this in terms of... Because I think a lot of people went into this. And a lot of people, I think, are disappointed that it isn't just a Citizen Kane movie. They think it's something more like Curtis, which is the Casablanca making of a movie on, that's on Netflix. And mm-hmm. it's also in black and white and very stylistic. Um, and I, I thought more of Trumbo. This reminds me of Trumbo a lot, this film. Yeah. Uh, not just because of like the witty the witticisms and the dialogue and oh the writer says clever things. I wrote I wrote down the um 
what's the line that he says? Oh, the dreaded yet foreseeable but when taking on criticism. Like, um, I, I, I don't know if I'm just sick of, oh, the smart writer says smart things trope. Again, this script was written in the 90s mostly, mm-hmm. but um, I, I thought people are going to go into this disappointed it's not a Citizen Kane film. It's a Herman J. Mankiewicz film mm-hmm. about him. It's a character study. Yeah. And the reason is because they promote it as a Citizen Kane movie. Trumbo wasn't promoted as a Roman holiday movie. It was Dalton Trumbo, the movie. So I kind of yeah. thought that sort of gets in the way of your perception of the movie. I think that's a factor in it. I just wanted to point that out. Oh, I think that's fair. But yeah. Um, I don't know if I would put it... I mean, yeah. Trumbo's an interesting one because I'm not sure I would... I could see some parallels to Trumbo, mm. but not enough. Um, I, I think it's mostly just a dialogue. Like, all, yeah, all the writers the quippy, in the room the are quippy. witty. Yep, yep, yep. Exactly. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. And a lot of the sort of shotgun pace of dialogue, mm. too, um, where people are almost on the brink of talking over each other, but never quite we, get there. It's funny you mention that, because I thought the same thing when I was rewatching Citizen Kane last I'm like, man, these guys talk over each other. There's so much energy. There's so much... Because I, I watched it with my mum. She'd never seen it before. Uh, and that was one of the first things that she said, is, man, they're all, they're all talking over each other. And in my filmmaking brand, I'm like, oh, it's because it's all long takes. They can. Yeah. But then you watch something like Mank, which is sort of trying to be an authentic 40s film. And you're right. They're on the brink of overlapping, but they never actually do. I found the energy to be really slow compared to something like Citizen Kane, where everyone's yelling all the time. Yeah, I would say it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's more stage play. Because yep. stage play, very rarely will they over-talk each other. Yeah. Because you, you only get to hear everything once. So it felt... Like and to be honest, a lot of forties, fifties films take that more stage play esque way of dialogue delivery because mm. um, the mixing was much harder to do back then. So you yep. had to make things very clear. This person saying, and it's also like the actors, most of them were conditioned for stage <coughs> theater. So to ha- mm. to enunciate their lines more clearly and concisely. Yeah. So everyone could hear what they were saying. I know um, people nowadays they complain that like, oh, too many actors just mumble their lines, and it's like, oh, well, it's because they can nowadays. Yeah, they don't have. To, you're right. They don't have to yell for for the um audio. And I, and this one they kind of do it. They still, you know, they little details like they take the bass out of the voice, so it sounds like an old film. Like little details like that. But you're right. The performances, other than you know, Amanda Seyfried, you know, doing the doing the accent for the talkies mm-hmm. every now and then. I was like, it feels like a modern performances. I, I hmm. That's what I thought. I don't know. I thought, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't, it's interesting because I, I, like you said, you, they like from a sound mixing point of view, the fact that they took the bass out. Yep. I saw that sometimes, but it didn't feel all the time. I thought it was mm. actually not that consistent and it almost would have been nicer if they had murkied it up a little bit and made it, Made it even little, more messy. Yeah, a little messier. Um, because if you watch back 40s films and stuff, I think the guy, I'm not 100%, the person they got who played Orson Welles... Um, oh, yeah. Um, Tom Burke. Or Burke. Was a very good at an hour. I don't know if they maybe mixed in oh, Orson. He was perfect. But that voice, voice was hauntingly good. Yeah. Compared to the original. Like, I can't. Um, I can't do it at all. There was sometimes it got, a little, it got a little out, but right. when he was calm, his angry was probably not mm. not quite as. But the calm, the charismatic, when he's just talking suave, normally, yeah, yeah, that was like scary good. Yeah, he's um, he was so good. 
And he, he kind of has a different look. Like, he's got a bit more beard than you used to see Orson Welles in, in, in Citizen Game, for example. Yeah, well, in a lot of his films, he never had a lot of beard. Touch of Evil, he's got a, a dirty stubble. But right. never, well, he, never had a Well, that's probably what it was then. Because um, I think that's what they were shooting in those first phone calls, is they were shooting Touch of Evil. And that's why he's on the phone to make. I think that's what's going on or in that scene. Not, Touch of Evil's a trick. Not 100%, because Touch of Evil didn't come out to 56 Oh, okay. Maybe we're gonna a different. But he had a couple of films in between. But yeah. Touch of Evil has like a very infamous story that I can't quite recall off the top of my head. Um, I'll quickly check because I feel like it's in here which film he's doing at the start of the film. But and because he rap oh Heart of Darkness, I'm thinking of Heart of Darkness. Okay. And then he oh, raps that's that. Just, I think that's his radio play. Yes. Sorry. Yes. 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 Um, not a. Uh... That makes sense. Yeah. Because yeah, Citizen Kane's his feature debut, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. That makes sense because it comes back to his childhood prodigy title. Where he, uh, yeah, and I find it really interesting to kind of, because this is what it comes back to. I think what these films are trying to do, all three of them, between Zodiac, Social Network, and this one, mm. they are trying to take these uh, mythical figures, because um, obviously, and I say, and try and kind of. They're mythical to us. Well, they're mythical to us in different ways, too, and they're yep. astronomically different from a, a serial killer that's never been caught over the course of decades mm. to a social media revolutionary person who's one of the richest people in the world and has easily the biggest social media platform on the planet and still does. Yeah. Um, And, you know, try and, and obviously, you know, one of the most iconic filmmakers of all time and trying to give a bit more context that they weren't... Trying to almost take them a little bit off their pedestal. Right. Um, and that comes back to in Zodiac, they very... Like, although they catch someone and it's not the Zodiac killer, they do give a technically well, a self-perceived human face to the Zodiac killer. Mm, exactly. In, it may have been a misaccusation, but we eventually do get someone that's they think is the Zodiac killer in that, which humanises this, this mythical legend. Um, and then in social network, we're obviously given literally this human. We give we get to see him create this thing and yeah. potentially see all the people that he burnt in order to achieve yeah. that. Well, greatness. He, even his portrayals, he's a bit of a weasel and he, he's not likable. No, whatsoever in, in social network. Um, and Orson Welles has obviously been put on a pedestal for you know nearly a century now mm. in, in the history of film, and to add this sort of obviously taken from that 1970s essay, that sort of more that ideology that he still had to burn a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I, I think that a lot of people would... Yeah, he probably did burn a lot of people and, and screw a lot of people over, but I think a lot of it might be jealousy as well. Yeah. Because well, I, I think I wanna, it does swing, but, but that yeah. you could argue that in Social Network too, that there were just a lot of people that just didn't understand genius. Right. And and sort of claimed that they helped, but they really didn't do more than throw him a little bit of money here or a little bit of money there and... They were smart, but they weren't geniuses, and that's the difference. Right. I think. Um, I think, and he does give them that sort of rationale too. That, um, a lot of them, you know, were just people that latched onto the winning, the winning <laughs> horse, and they're kind of a bit salty that they're not on the same sort of level of, um, fame. Fame. Yeah. Exactly. And that that pettiness. So, um. And this this film isn't afraid to shy away from that, or, or and kind of give at least a little bit of a counterpoint. And that's what I like about all three of them. Yeah. I think they do that pretty well. I like f- Mank is also not the most likable character on on the planet too. 
Well, I guess not, but, like, I never watched it being like, oh, how dare he? Like, he, he's definitely portrayed as a bit of a hero in this. He's portrayed as the smartest guy in the room, and <laughs> um, even, like, towards the end when he has that one-on-one with Orson Welles, and, and the movie's really just praising him the whole time. And, and what I've read is that um, Fincher, David Fincher, actually, when he took his dad's script, he actually... The script itself was very anti-Wells, like mm-hmm. super anti-Wells, and he actually kind of pulled back on it. He actually made uh, Wells a little more likable in the final film, which I thought was interesting because he is. I I feel like he's definitely the villain okay. in this film. But no, I I think I think you're right in a sense, which is funny because it does play into a almost life imitate art in a weird mm. way because. Obviously, he's the one who portrays Citizen Kane and one of my favourite films, The Third Man. He also plays a very charismatic villain in that yeah. too. And he was also like the rumoured director or something like Well, yeah, He was involved more than was reported. Yes, he allegedly. claimed he wrote it and, um, or at least had way more of a hand in it than what he did. Right. Or, or Well, it's all allegedly. And that's what it comes back to because obviously a lot back then there wasn't a lot of behind-the-scenes recording or mm. a lot of really delving into it most of it like referred to leaked emails no no leaked (laughs) emails obviously most of those articles that we were talking about at the start of this review uh actually refer they're just accounts from secretaries yeah and people that were in proximity but mostly were probably just doing what they're you know obviously their superiors both manx assistant and wells assistant they're doing what's best for them. They're keeping a level of professionalism that people carried at that time. Yeah. Um, I'll try to. <laughs> I guess well, definitely we're definitely the, the blue collar did. And they do mm. a touch on the, the blue collar loyalty to the system. And there is a whole point of uh, sort of revolution with that, obviously due to the pay cuts and stuff. There's a big, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, shift. Um, and it comes back to that whole point of, with what that election would have dictated if uh, the Democratic elective Sinclair had been elected. Would yeah. Would have given I, more opportunities to the blue collar and less to the uh, uh, the richer Republican mm. Party. Well, it's interesting because when I, when I first like, walked out of the film and read some letterbox, this is a bit like a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I, I remember laughing at one of the reviews being like, wait, why is there an election going on? What's going on? Like that, That's definitely one of the people who didn't expect a, a more thorough... Uh, exp- uh, exploration of Herman J. Yeah, and, I, and it's not propaganda. But, like, it's just, that's just, that's something that happened in time. Like, a politician came along, promised a bunch of things, and he just so happened to be aligned with the Democratic Party at the time. And, yeah. Well, I think it's um, all mostly to do with with the actual, the, the, the propaganda films that they make yeah. in the film. And then, of course, that leads to um, a lot of very sad people. <laughs> but it, it's funny you mention that because I actually noticed something. This was an article I was reading weeks ago. And it was it was talking about how the film purposely released after the twenty twenty American presidential election, uh, because of sort of the commentary that's gone on here. And there's a lot of like the you know the fake news stuff that is in those propaganda images. Well, and, and most of the funny thing is that nowadays, and it's good that they they I think they did because I don't think this film is trying to tackle any sort of modern day politic mm. statement. In fact. You would probably nowadays, particularly in the American system, uh, democracy system, you, the Republican Party would honestly be targeting the lower economic class over the the upper economic class nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, so it actually probably be flipped, and that's just how how honestly how fluid democratic systems are. And it's the same thing that happens in Australia too. Um, <laughs> if you look back a hundred years, the 
the alignments probably were completely different or were way, way more black and white and less kind of yeah, crossing yeah. over between whatever they say. I say the opposite, basically. That's right, pretty yeah. much how it was. It, it definitely felt like it was saying more than like, oh, this is why this happens in Citizen Kane. Like it felt a little bit more than just like, here's a reference for this reference. Really? You think you think they were trying to make a statement? Well, I don't know it, how specific they were trying to make a statement, but I, I feel like the reason it was in the film was to tell more about Herman J. Mankiewicz as a character, more mm. so than just, oh, that's in Citizen Kane and this happens here. I think the film is more tackling classism than it is any sort of political alignment. Mm. Um, and obviously... Well, I think the, it's all the, to do with the, the disconnect that he has from everyone but, around him. But I was... Yeah, I I think he finds himself in the upper class, but he is not of an upper class mindset. Mm. I think Um, he's definitely in the upper middle class. Like he's not, uh, he's not like a key grip or some lighting guy who burns (laughs) his hands. You know, he's, he's well off and self-sufficient and honestly is allowed to get away with a lot in his place of work. As we cut back to his first, (laughs) the first couple of times we see him in the early uh, 1934, he's sitting around an office, Gambling and uh, the five thousand dollars for the yeah. what the flower falling While down they have, like that. They have a secretary <laughs> that's in next to no clothing. Oh, uh, yeah, typing. That um, threw me off. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, like I said, yeah, he knows how to fun, but he's far from someone who's poor. Like, he's allowed to just throw this money away or aimless gambling yeah. and stuff. And but again, I think that, that instead of saying the same, that's more just to show us who he is as a character, that he is a bit problematic, he's alcoholic, he's a gambler, he's yeah. destructive in that way. But it's like I think that the film is more trying to, yeah, show his classist disconnect mm. rather than political sort of stuff. He's politically but I think that's aware all in there of it. too. Yeah. But what I think what they're suggesting is those who are in the upper class are politically unaware. And the only reason they vote for. The party, the is, non-Sinclair party, is yeah. They vote for the party that's going to put keep the money in their pockets, make them not be accountable for taking mm. care of the lower classes, and that's where. So had it been the opposite, had Sinclair been a Republican, um, the exact same story would have been told. I think mm. so. I think it's not as directly on the nose as obviously modern day elections are. <coughs> it's more showing that. They were voting for the party that was going to keep them rich, basically. Um, Whereas nowadays it's a little bit more uh, tribal, I think, than what it was back then. Whereas it very much was the rich want to stay rich, and they want they're politically they like having opinions, but their opinions are not educated and they're not aware of what's going on in the world around them, and they make that very apparent long before the election scene Hmm. in those opening party scenes. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about this in a sec, but um, but that yeah, the only reason I mentioned that it came, it was a conscious decision to release it after the election is because we've reviewed two films very recently that consciously released before the election, mm-hmm. the Trial of the Chicago 7 and Borat's subsequent movie film. Yes, and which most of them were met with a lot of people, you know, taking swings at them for being very propaganda towards one political wing or the other, you know. Is, like, is that like an actual criticism? People say? I mean, I'm not saying they're not like Am left-leaning I- films, but... No, no, I, I, it's not a critique on my part. But no, I think, I'm saying I haven't heard anyone yeah, say that. We'll probably go through Letterbox, mate. Uh, fair enough. Flow. You'll find anything. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Um, Any, anything that takes a political stance that doesn't align with someone's political be- beliefs yeah. will always be met with some form of criticism from the other side. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's pretty spot on, I guess. Mm. It's Michael Mooreism. 
Michael Moore's a character, that's for sure. Um, all right, well, leading into the the party scene, we, we've we already kind of talked about it, but I want to talk a bit more about uh, Marion Davis, played by Amanda Seyfried. And, I mean, that's a great representation of the the political disagreements, the fact that Mank and uh, Seyfried's character are sort of... They're the two that go off into the other room. They're the two that, like... Uh, we need a breather. Yeah, we need a breather. This... this Political discussion, which it weirdly reminded me of the Halloween party I went to earlier this year. Is it just turned? It just turned into we've that. We've all been at a party <laughs> like yep. that where yep. we wished we could just exit the room. <laughs> it's just like it's got a little too political. The best part is when there's too thirty people, you can exit without making too. Yeah, big exactly. Fun. Well, I think this is a great segue into their relationship because one of the things that I mean, the video we talked about on YouTube earlier goes into is the relationship that Mank and uh, Davies has, uh, and and how much. He he in the film he very much disputes it and there's been a lot of disputes and I think even Orson Welles has disputed this himself but the fact that uh, the character in Citizen Kane uh, Susan Alexandra Kane is based on her and you know the discussion of was she his his rosebud and that whole thing I I thought it was very interesting especially on the rewatch seeing their relationship and how they meld and, and mm-hmm. her performance. Well, what did you think of her performance, firstly? This is probably the best Seyfried performance I've ever seen, to be mm-hmm. honest. I can't think of one that I enjoyed more. Um, I didn't really care for her in Les Mis um, or any of her real singing seen, roles. I haven't seen that one yet. Um, that's probably, if you were to ask people what their favourite Seyfried performance, it's probably something tied to musical, the musical films that she's in, Mamma Mia and, oh, yeah, Mamma and Mia, Les Mis. Mia too. Um, That's fair. She's in in. Oh yeah, and I forgot she's in um a million ways to die in the West. Unfortunately, yeah, thing. that's the kind of most of the films in at least the last decade she's found herself in those sort of films. Ted two, Ted uh, two. I mean, Mean Girls is a big one, but you're right. That's a comedy as well. Uh, it's not like an actress. And she's very flex, much that film, particularly back then. She was very early on in her career and definitely took a back seat to. I think it was her first film. Oh, there you go. I think yeah. She definitely takes a back seat to McAdams. Yeah, in that film, and Lindsay Lohan, and, and Lindsay Lohan. Um, so I would say this is probably the best thing I've seen her in. Mm. Um, I think she's incredibly charismatic. Uh, I think her timing's really good, and she just makes a really good classic Hollywood <coughs> uh, visual. I actually think, yeah, she someone, looks great. In the, the it's role fascinating. The hair and everything. Well, I'm well, I'm watching it, and honestly, all I'm thinking is. Man, she would have made been really good in La La Land. <laughs> <laughs> like I forgot she can she can sing and and she can probably she probably learn how to dance if she can't dance. I don't know if she can dance, but right. I mean I thought Emma Stone was great in La La Land, but yeah, of course. I you want you wondering a world where Amanda Cipher is in in La La Land now? Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's fair enough. Um, I mean I really like her in Mamma Mia and Lame Is, but oh I don't really like her. In, I'm not big the biggest fan of Lame Is the film. Um, but a lot, I don't think a lot of people are though. Am I wrong on that or? I think it's a bit all up in there. I think some people really like it. Some people don't. I'm not a big fan of it. I like her in Mamma Mia, but Mamma Mia is just a bit of fun. So the le- the letterbox like, uh, stretch is all over the place, but it's got a 3.5 average. So that's there pretty good. Tom um, Hooper. But this is definitely the thing. Yes. <laughs> this is definitely the th- film for her mm. that I've seen that I've probably enjoyed the most from her performance. Yeah, no, for sure. It was it was fun to. I think she's great in it as well, and it was fun to watch Citizen Kane after watching this film for the first time and and seeing the similarities between the character that's portrayed in Citizen Kane versus uh, the portrayal of uh, Marion Davis by Amanda Seyfried in this film. 
where it's like, okay, well, we're seeing how similar they are. And of course, I think the offense is meant to come from the fact that uh, in Citizen Kane that she's a bad singer and they, they can't really fix her singing. And like, well, she's, she's a bit of a. She gets elevated because of uh, the levity of her marriage mm. to. Um, but she's Kane. always getting reviewed bomb, isn't she? Uh, yeah, but she's always getting roles. I think that's the... Yeah, yeah. Um, well, she gets more shows around the country and stuff, I, I think. I think, yeah. Um, obviously, they're going to, like you said, in real life, they did deny that that was indeed the case. But mm. obviously, you can't... But I think the film also says, well, there's enough... And we we and the best part is with the film is we can directly see the correlation between the character that yep. Mankin and if you believe it, Wells developed um, compared to the one that, and they relate and we get to flesh out their relationship a bit. Um, and it's even called out like in this film, like she makes a joke about herself playing herself 10 years younger mm-hmm. when reading Citizen Kane and then Gary Oldman just be like, that wasn't about you. Mm. And I like the little but arguments. It, could also, it, could, it also acknowledges potentially the egotism of mm. people believing that it's just them just because I know that person. I guess Are they so. writing it about me? Um, but there's more. It's not just her saying that. It's like a lot of characters. It was a full rumor, and this was like a real rumor as well. Like, yeah. if you actually go on uh, Miranda Davis's uh, letterbox in her bio, that's actually one of a whole paragraph is how she was believed to be in the inspiration for that character. Yeah, I think it just comes back to there was probably quite a few people that were in that position back then. Mm. I, th- I do think the writing. In and I think we talked about this on our review for Citizen Kane. Everyone feels like caricatures. They're, they're very um, mm. doesn't feel like a, in like, Citizen Kane. Yeah, it's very performative. Yeah, um, yeah, Everyone's obviously, and the whole thing for that is trying to demythalize um, Kane as a person. <coughs> you know, Charles Foster Kane trying to break him, deconstruct him, and mm. that's the whole point of that. And it's funny seeing a film deconstructing the deconstruction, basically. Um, yeah, I, again, that's where my um, Slumdog Millionaire joke comes from. Yeah, in a way. But um, you're right. It was it just the meta ness of it. Oh, watching this performance, trying to be this performance of this performance. But I thought this film was not at all pretentiously acknowledging the apparatus of film. Like it wasn't like, mm. like I said, it wasn't someone sitting at a typewriter debate. In fact, they completely skip over most of his typing. It's just comes back to him occasionally when we need to come back. Yeah, to Yeah, and a the, few discussions and. Um, but even just stylistically, like, yes, it's in black and white. There's no montages of him writing the script. No, no, no. Even Trumbo has those as well. But I agree, because, like, stylistically, it's there with, like, the cue marks in the top right and stuff. Mm-hmm. A little shout-out to Fight Club, I suppose. Um, I love but... the the flashback bridge. Like, oh, with the, with the, the text coming up? Yeah. I thought that. See, that, to me, That's was cool. a very stylistic way of doing the flashbacks, and I really liked it. Because that adds I reckon, to the meta-ness, and I yep. think that it's not tacky, too. I reckon that was uh, David Fincher just adding that. I don't think that was written in. I no, mean, David Fincher just decided to have that Really good screen. way of bridging it. Really good way of bridging it. Yeah, because it even has flashback in, in brackets yeah. <laughs> on the type but up. It, yeah. But it, it's it's not like... can like It just helps bridge the narrative a little bit more. It makes yeah. it... I thought it was, yeah. Um, and sort of, uh, I thought it was a really clever way to do it. I remember the first time it came up, I was like, oh, that's nice. And it made yeah. it really easy to understand what was going on in the narrative. And I actually think it helps with the pacing a bit more. Mm. Because every time it came up, you knew you were about to be revealed more information that would contribute to the script that he's developing right now. Yeah, for sure. And I think the fact that this film is not linear 
really helps. Yeah. It's pacing. Well, that, that feels very much like an ode to Citizen Kane and that being a very early non-linear mm-hmm. film or narrative. Um, and they even there's even a line in this film where the guy says, like, you know, the writing's great, but your your story's going back and forth, back and forth. And he's like, oh, welcome to my mm. brain or whatever. Yeah. Like Gary Ullman says. Um, I, I thought, in terms of the way it was shot, like, I thought there were too many smooth camera dollies and pans or just a little too smooth if they're trying to go for that 1940s aesthetic the only there is a lot of those types of movements in the 1940s those those there kind is, of but dolly it, it just felt too clean you know what i mean maybe a little too clean like there could have been a, like it, it would have been nice to have i don't know if they were done on manual dollies or they were done with a stabilizer or something it would have actually right. been nice to take the stabilizer out and have that little maybe if someone hit the rail little and have that jolt, little bump yeah. like well even even in citizen kane when you when you you go through the sign to the club and then you go through the window. Mm-hmm. That's a messy camera movement, but yeah. it's it's so early and unique. And, well, and what, It was the first of sort of its kind, or at least yeah, first absolutely. in Western cinema. To do these kind um, of camera moves and transitions and stuff. I agree. There was, there was only one. I mean, that was one of my favourite counterpoints mm-hmm. that was addressed in that video we were talking about earlier was how although he was a very egocentric person, his mm. directing credit is shared with the cinematographer. Which yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I that's think that's a, good a very good counterpoint. Someone who... In terms of his egotism. Yeah. Yeah. So you must have had amazing respect for his cinematographer. And to be fair, when you perform camera movements like that or that level of innovation and knowledge, for yeah. you, that's almost equally... And some of the shots in Citizen Kane, they're incredible. They're well, iconic. That, that's why I was I was a little surprised by how few Citizen Kane quote unquote shots are in this film. There's one in my highlight scene. Okay. But um I I think you're ready to yeah, transition yeah. to that. Yeah. Well my, my I got two highlight scenes, my, probably the one I would give the the award to, if you will. Um, is the scene with Louis B. Mayer um from yeah, MBM. Is it MBM? MGM. MGM, Jesus Christ, one thing. It's because he has B in his name. Mm. Um it's a scene when he does sort of that sork and walk and talk with, with mm. Mank and uh, it leads into him walking into the, doing the speech for his workers about cutting their pay in half yeah. or even less. Uh, there is a Citizen Kane shot from, I think it's like on a Dutch angle or tilt up from the staircase and it's looking down and it it almost feels fake, the yeah. enormity of the crowd and then the stage that he's on. It just cut, it kind of felt fake, but in that classic way where I was like, this feels like a Citizen Kane shot mm-hmm. and I love it. Uh, but even just his performance in that scene, uh, Ari uh, Les Howard, I think that's his name. Um, he did a great job. I love that character as well because he's so full and he's like, he's like, I only accept stories that I that make me cry or give me emotion. I feel emotion up here, up here, and right there. And he does a little grab. <laughs> um, and the other scene I want to give a quick shout out to is towards the end when uh, Herman's friend Shelley, he has the gun. We worried, you know, is he gonna? hurt himself and he takes the bullets and just the way that scene was played out when he returns the bullets to the wife and the, she, she has the whole reveal box. there was a whole box bang it's like oh that's a that was cool yeah that was a really cool execution moment definitely my highlight scene is probably <laughs> it was a double entendre Zeke what was it, it was a well executed scene yes <laughs> um my highlight scene would have to go to probably um there's a couple of little uh little odes like little shots that I'm that bring me right back to that grounded 40s feel. Mm, um, okay. Prior to the car accident, the <coughs> projector shot they use. Oh, and they're driving. It's a very, yeah. Great pickup, yeah. Yeah, I loved that. I was like, okay, I'm in the 40s here. And everything from the start being like the credits in, in the, the sky, sky pushing down. Yep. Yeah. 
everything about that. The um, There are some shots that I actually liked that are way more... Not early Orson Welles, but definitely Touch of Evil Orson Welles okay. that are painted in there. The ob- the top angle, low, like that high angle looking down observational movement shot. Mm. A couple of those are quite prominent in, in things like Touch of Evil and stuff like that. Um, but it'd have to be the Fallout fight scene when uh, Mank finally declares, with Welles, yeah, where he declares he wants credit. Yep. And we really get to see the the grandiose Orwellian sort of ego burst, which he does show on films quite a bit, but obviously it's very much a life intimidation. Uh, um, well, this is meant to be imitating. him. He's himself in the scene, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that one mixed in with the the meeting they have where he go, uh, where Mank goes, I'm burnt out, and just before Wells leaves, he goes, it's the best thing you've ever written. Mm. Um, it's just a really nice, like, pick up and pay off sort of situation that they both know they're on the precipice of something special. Yeah. And he wants that credit and um it leads to that outburst in which when he's about to storm out he's like, "Oh, well Kane needs that outburst. He needs that uh that sort of level of fight so we know he's not the good guy in this story necessarily mm. or it's shattering this prodigy prodigy illusion and I think what that's trying to infer is <coughs> Kane is not just a representation of this business tycoon character that we think is based off, but it's actually kind of also an ode to Ors- Orson Welles. Yeah, a bit of himself in it. Yeah, yeah. which um, I think that Welles m- might not have seen when he was performing it, but I think Mank might have seen something that wells might not have or maybe he he was and he was not afraid of shying away from yeah. his own image basically some Which inspiration someone, in someone with that level of an ego probably wouldn't be afraid <laughs> um yeah tom burke does a great job as also fantastic was. fantastic scene yeah i agree um, with you should have got an ensemble nod at sunset it's crazy didn't no between that It'd and be like Chicago that. 7, I'm yeah. a bit baffled. That, yeah. I don't know what they... They, no. they didn't like the social network, apparently. <laughs> exactly. No worries. <laughs> well, Mank is currently out on Netflix, mm. and uh, yeah, that's... I think it's still screening a Luna as well. It actually is. They were doing it at the outdoor cinema. Oh, sweet. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah, it's if you really want to see this in the theatre and you live in Perth, then Luna is still screening this on the big screen. I, yeah. I, I, I'm going to be honest. I, I didn't get too much extra out of the big screen thing. Other than just, like, paying attention. Yeah. I'm not on my phone on Netflix. Well, speaking of cinemas, <laughs> Jake, what's new in cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Uh, this is a fun week, Zeke. Let's Ooh. get into it. Fun fun times. Uh, on Netflix this week, we mentioned it earlier, but Ryan Murphy's The Prom uh, drops. Uh, also, season six of Vikings, which is already out in New Zealand, but comes to Australia this week. Uh, and season one of Alice in Borderland, uh, which I think is based on a manga series and follows an aimless gamer and his two friends who find themselves in a parallel Tokyo playing sadistic games for survival. So, uh, Intense. Yeah, it's it's interesting mm. stylistic. Uh, on Stan this week, you have Maholland Drive, which I think is already on Netflix, but I think I've already read that. Who, who knows with Stan mm-hmm. anymore? Uh, and 2015's Concession. Also, a new miniseries begins, I think today, episode one drops, called Your Honor, and it stars my boy, Brian Cranston. Okay. He plays a judge who must face impossible choices when his son is involved in a hit-and-run case. Damn. So I think as a judge, yes. I like, feel like that judge would not be appointed to that case. <laughs> you see, that's my exact reaction too. Hmm. So there must be some deeper plot or 
or it's off to a bad start already. Mm. <laughs> the plot, the actual logline doesn't make sense. We'll find out. I, I think there's something about like mob dealers and stuff involved as well okay. that I elected to scrap from my reading, but that, that's fine. Uh, on Disney Plus this week, you have High School Musical with a holiday special. Um, do you have you ever seen High School Musical? No, I've never seen it. Yeah, I people are shocked when I say I've never seen them. Like, a lot of people have seen those movies. I don't know. Uh, classics. If you go to Hoyt's this week, you'll see uh, the Will Ferrell film Elf uh, and Rocky. Rocky's not a Will Ferrell film. Rocky is Rocky, the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at Luna, you can watch Bon Joon-ho's Memories of Murder as well, which I think is one of his better films as well. Uh, and Akira Remastered in 4K is also at Luna. And finally, new to cinemas. Uh, I'm really excited to read this one, Zeke. The Furnace to Escape. The outback, a young Afghan camela falls in with a mysterious bushman, uh, bushman on the run with stolen crown and gold. Um, this probably is, out of all the films that we've ever talked about on the show, mm-hmm. other than like films that we've directed ourselves, mm-hmm. this is probably the closest to home. We have friends who worked on this film. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, I'm keen to see how that uh, how that will turn out. Yeah, I, we're definitely going to... I'm actually in talks to do something very special for that film for this podcast but no promises okay who knows what i'm able to do but um it's very exciting please watch that film we pull have friends. connections yeah pull those connections baby um please watch that film uh, i i it looks great it looks really great mm-hmm. i gotta authentically say that um yeah uh it was also the only aussie film to go to venice in the last year so that's pretty impressive it is pretty impressive uh, with baby teeth last year Mm. Or the previous year. Uh, also, this week, an reimagining of Roald Dahl's The Witches, starring Anna Hathaway and directed by Robert Zemeckis. It's good to see he's still working. Uh, Feel Good Aussie film Cracker Jack. And from Wednesday the 9th through to Sunday the 13th, the Revelation Film Festival was running at Luna. Uh, I'm going to be trying and catching as much as I can. I want to thank Ian Hale for giving me gold passes. Uh, Zeke, you're not even going to be in the vicinity. Unfortunately not. No, I'm going mm. to take a little break nah. down south. Oh, very excited for you. Yeah. I'll be watching. R&R. Yeah. No, you need it. You need it. You worked on, you worked on way too much <laughs> the last few I'm cooked. Last few months. Um, but I'm very excited. So uh, those are things that I'll be talking about on episode 101. There's actually a lot to talk about. Yes. On 101. Because for all our milestone episodes, we like doing pre-recorded episodes. <laughs> so because you're traveling, Zeke, episode 100... Uh, which is it's a very, you're right it's a very strange episode to do a pre-record on but you know you got to do what you got to do we want episode I, 100 yeah of course to be um, on time. it's our celebratory episode um, it's actually probably a little better than some of our other pre-records because some of those I was gone for five or six weeks so yeah this is just the one week this is just yeah and we're going to be doing it pretty close to the day it would have come out anyway so yeah it's not like we've already done episode 100 like yes. we are recording that in correct order. Yes. It's just we're recording earlier than we like to usually. Yeah. But that's fine. Of course. Um, so, uh, that was all you had for... That's it. Zip. That's okay, what's cool. coming to cinemas and streaming this week. Now, I'm going to have to change it up this week because, uh, Jake, we're not allowed to say what we're watching next week on the show. No. Um, but we, what we're going to do here, because obviously, uh, as we've talked about over Instagram, we are doing a little bit of a giveaway. Mm. Um, and... The giveaway is for, uh, if you can guess, the film of the week that we're doing next week on the show. Episode 100. Before the episode <laughs> is recorded. Um, oh, you well, want it before it's recorded or before oh, it's no, released? Oh, no, imagine before it's released, because we could always reveal the winner on 101 if we have yeah, to, right? I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure that's fine. Um, yeah, so... So you got, you got less than a week as of right this second. As of right this second. <laughs> um, so we're going to play you a little bit of the trailer for that 
oh, on the show. Oh, So um, if you can, that'll give you a little bit of a hint, because right now we haven't got a right answer yet. So we'll give you that little bit of the trailer, a little bit of snippet right now. And uh, if you can message at ZKMH or at Jack the Clicker on Instagram yep. with your answer, um, you can be in the running to win the two Blu-rays from any of the first hundred episodes Mm. that are not uh, That are actually available on DVD. Of course. That that we can logistically get to you. Yeah. Uh, But uh, as you said in the video we recorded for this separately, uh, it's all up for discussion with the winner once Mm. they're selected or found or whatever the case. um, So, Jake, do you want to count us into the trailer? Yeah. All right. So, everyone, next week on the show for episode 100, we're watching Insert Title Here. I never wanted this for you. Isaac, I can't read this blurb. It spoils the movie. Yeah, I'm very excited to do it next week on the show. So it'll be interesting to see if someone guessed that trailer and what film that was, basically. We're basically rewarding you for actually listening to the show. Because you would have a a much better advantage. It was a genius idea we came up about 20 minutes before recording the show. (laughs) But Uh, until then, I'm I'm very excited for next week, Jake. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week for episode 100. Yeah!